Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Confluence Cast presented by Columbus Underground. We are a weekly Columbus-centric podcast focusing on the civics, lifestyle, entertainment, and people of our city. I'm your host, Tim Fulton. This week, we try to answer the burning question, when is Columbus getting a hyperloop? Columbus Underground reporter Brent Warren spoke with Thea Ewing, the Director of Transportation and Infrastructure Development for the Mid-Ohio Regional Planning Commission. They discussed the who, how, when, and what that needs to happen for us to get a Hyperloop. They discussed what it's going to be like to travel through a tube, what's holding Columbus back from mass transit, the importance of redundancies in technology, including transportation, and how we need to have realistic expectations around this change. You can get more information on what we discussed today in the show notes for this episode at theconfluencecast.com. Also, the Confluence Cast is on Patreon. Find out how to support this podcast on our website, theconfluencecast.com, or at patreon.com slash confluence. The Confluence Cast is sponsored this week by the Mid-Ohio Regional Planning Commission, or MORPSI, featuring stories about local and regional partners that envision and embrace innovative directions in economic prosperity, transportation, sustainability, and an inclusive Central Ohio. MORPSI's transformative programming, innovative services, and public policy initiatives are designed to promote and support the vitality and growth in the region. For more information, please visit morpsi.org. Enjoy the interview. Thea Ewing is speaking with us today. She is the Director of Transportation and Infrastructure Development for the Mid-Ohio Regional Planning Commission. Did I get that right, Thea? Yeah, Brett. <laughs> thanks, thanks for talking with me today. I really appreciate it. Uh, pleasure's all ours. And just to kind of frame the conversation, we are going to talk about the Hyperloop today, and I'm excited to talk about that. And, you know, there's a lot that Morpsy does that we, that we could talk about, because um, we cover a lot of the different topics that your organization is involved in. But I wanted to drill down into the Hyperloop, uh, especially just because I've been covering it pretty closely for, for the last few years. And also, I'm still a bit of a Hyperloop skeptic. So I want to kind of hash that out and go through it with you, because you know a lot about this, and you can maybe answer some of the questions I still have about, about this thing. But before you do that, I want to take a couple steps back. I know not everybody is familiar with Morpsy and the work that you do. So can you give us kind of an overview of what Morpsy is and what, what your role is and what kind of projects you work on? Sure. Thanks, Brent. So Morpsy, um, a really great way to describe them, uh, us uh, at Morpsy, is like a chamber of commerce for local government. Um, We have several members from across the region, over 70 now, uh, local governments. who basically are are members and we provide services to them. Uh, Sometimes it's in the way of guidance on various policy issues. Other times we're assisting their citizens with weatherizing their homes. Um, But in my case, um, we go after grants for federal funds for transportation projects. And uh, we actually have a dedicated uh, resource pool that comes into us through the Federal Highway Administration and Ohio Department of Transportation that we divvy up around the metropolitan planning area, which is the core area of, of the Columbus Central Ohio area. And um, that's around $35 million a year. Nothing to really sneeze at, right? Uh, but oh, overall, when it comes to federal funds, we plan the entire um it's approximately about a billion dollars a year that gets planned out with federal funds, whether they're under our umbrella or not uh, in central Ohio. So we we're kind of doing a little bit of planning work and a little bit of allocation of resources in the transportation arena. Um, all very forward thinking. We look out as far as like 30 years in the future to think about how we're going to light up all these projects as well as <clears throat> Once they're getting closer to getting accomplished, making sure the funds are in the right accounts on the right days to start those projects. So uh, that's really kind of the intricacies of my job. I can be working with CODA, ODOT, 
City of Columbus and any of the other um, local governments in, in the region on any of their transportation projects uh, at as far out as 30 years from now or as the, they're going to be happening tomorrow. So uh, it's a great place to be. A lot of people don't realize there's even people who do what we do, uh, but we're here and we're here for your future. Great. And can you talk, because I know you've done a lot of interesting things in your career previous to starting at Morpsey. What led you to this job and, and what kind of is your background in general? Oh, thank you for asking. Um, I have a degree in public administration and urban and regional planning. Uh, my university, go Red Hawks, uh, as well as a master's degree at Wright State of Public Administration as well. I started out actually doing some of this planning level work in the Clark County area, uh, reviewing applications for local governments to receive state funding for um, multiple types of infrastructure projects, not just transportation water systems, even brownfield cleanups, um, and then leverage that experience um, onto being director of that agency, and then ultimately to work with the state in brownfield cleanup uh, it, for the development uh, department or development services agency as it's known today. And uh, through my relationships there and uh, my knowledge, my previous knowledge of transportation, kind of the full package of infrastructure knowledge, uh, I was able to get in here at Morpsey. Um, I have a great relationship with my boss, uh, William Murdoch. He and I both worked at Development Services Agency. Uh, he trusts that what I bring to the table with transportation. Um, and um, we've been able to get a lot accomplished at Morpsey together. But I would say that we started that uh, uh, building on that work uh, dynamic at the state in the Brownfield arena, and it's just transferred on to transportation work. So really excited to continue on uh, working with him and working with Morpsey in Central Ohio. It's just such a great and collaborative community. Now, there's one thing you didn't mention that I wanted to ask you about, because when we spoke previously, you kind of mentioned as an aside, that you had, you'll have to correct me on this, you had like run a small railroad line or something. Do I have that right? Yes, so that was that was true. Um, so when I was the director of the Clark County Springfield Transportation Coordinating Committee, uh, part of the role of the, of the um, MPO there was also to manage the Port Authority. Um, and um, I took on the Port Authority for a couple of years. I actually ran a freight railroad, <laughs> um, and it's called the West Central Ohio Port Authority Railroad. It's about 100 miles of track between Belt Fountain and West Jefferson. Uh, it branches off in areas like around Urbana um, and on there. And um, it was a little bit of history when Conrail was kind of uh, disinvesting uh, of, of their um, infrastructure in Ohio. Several grain farmers in West Central Ohio said, hey, we still use that track. Uh, what, how are we going to get our grain to market? And so they contacted Clark County. Clark County worked with the other counties around them. And this was like maybe like the early 90s, late 80s. And uh, they went and bought this line from Conrail um, at wow. that time, because Conrail was just going to get rid of it. And so uh, my old boss told me the story of how they literally drove to Pennsylvania and paid them in a check uh, that was written by the state of Ohio at the time uh, to, to uh, actually buy that for that purpose. And then uh, keeping that um, profitable or at least um, solvent was part of my duties as the uh, secretary treasurer of the port authority under my role at the MPO there you kind of wear in small government you wear many hats uh, so it was a really good experience I had to learn how to sell um, uh, the tax credits there's tax credit um, that come to railroads for improvements you can sell those as a way of uh, getting revenue to do other investments on that railroad going after different set of grants completely for rail um, uh, as versus the uh, federal highway and transit that I'm used to. So yeah, it's really diversified my experience and um, definitely it was invaluable. I got to do things like uh, ride a high rail, which is whenever they take one of their trucks up on the track and uh, they have the wheels for the rail in, installed on the bottom of like a, 
a big like a Yukon or something and uh, then they just mount them down and the coolest thing about that I mean as a driver of a vehicle we're so used to the steering wheel you don't have like they they basically tape that down uh, and you just hit gas or brake, gas or brake. <laughs> I was like, what are you doing to the steering wheel? They're like, yeah, we just latch it in so the, so the wheels don't get in the way of the, the rail wheels. I was like, that's cool. <laughs> so, yeah. You were like driving an SUV on a railroad track? Is that what? <laughs> yeah, that's that's yeah. a high rail. Yeah, that's wow. like, a, it's basically what they do to inspect tracks uh, for, for projects. Uh, and because I had, during that time, uh, I'd written several grants to do some improvements for that railroad. I had to go out with some of the inspectors um, for the pre-construction um, activities in order to get, you know, to get contractors on the project to, to write out the scope the best way. And uh, yeah, so I got to, I got to experience that. Um, yeah, I mean, there was definitely some really neat opportunities that you only get to experience working with rail like my other transportation jobs i've gotten to do some really cool stuff but that was one of them was working with the rail i'm probably just you know another geeky rail nerd when it comes down to it <laughs> yeah and i i think it i mean i think a lot of us are so <laughs> but yeah. I, I think it came up uh because we were talking about passenger rail and you mentioned just in passing that you had this experience but that really gives you a kind of a much more tangible knowledge of like how railroads work than maybe you would have otherwise, I would imagine. Yeah, certainly from the freight side and even the smaller freight side, trying, you know, that because a lot of the like Norfolk Southern or CSX, they're, mo they're moving big products for big companies who really know how to access uh, them. For the smaller short line, I, I realized what the struggles were after I learned that job. Uh, and I mean, passenger wasn't even in, in our purview, so I can't even pretend to know all of the ins and outs of that. But I've done a lot of uh, um, research and, uh, of course, worked with my colleagues who are in places that are doing passenger rail, as well as just fully understanding how rail works from that experience definitely added to it. Um, and uh, why, I mean, at least I understand why uh, freight railroad um, is challenged by another uh, party trying to use their track, right? I definitely get that. So um, I maybe come at it with a little bit more experience than some, but not. I'm never going to claim to be an expert. <laughs> I'm still <Right>. learning. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, actually, I was going to touch on this later after we talked about the Hyperloop, but since you brought it up, I know there are a lot of challenges to, I think I had asked you about in Florida, there's a private company building, has already built and is operating a passenger rail line there. And mm -hmm. it's actually the same company that's doing, or it's connected to the company that's doing the Hyperloop or that wants to do the Hyperloop. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the Virgin, Virgin, like Virgin yes, yes, yes. Um, but I had asked you like, okay, what, why don't we see that kind of activity in Ohio, or at least like interest in it from a par private company coming, coming in and building a passenger rail system here. And I think part of that has to do you explained with the rights to the to the rail lines. Is that right? That is true. So uh, they are uh, interested, though. We do. We we've had at least an initial conversation, actually, more with more than one private sector over the six-year period I've been in this position. I need to caveat that 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 there is interest, um, but I think that's the the kind of uh, ball of yarn that the person talking to me most of the time is like, okay what's you know how am i going to get past all that um so for for brightline uh in florida they were able to acquire the track so kind of like we did at conrail or with the conrail track with the west central Ohio port authority uh, we bought it and then nobody else can lay claim to it and it's a done deal right um mm -hmm. so really there's nothing on our corridor that's like up for sale like that um, right now, but that doesn't mean the future won't hold that. So then you've kind of got to need to use the federal regulations around sharing track. Um, and then that becomes a little bit more of a, a back and forth between the freight railroads. And I think uh, it, both sides of that conversation struggle. 
um, with making that work. Um, if you, I mean, for instance, I mean, we know, we have passenger rail that did, does come through the state of Ohio, down to Cincinnati, and up in Cleveland and Toledo. Um, the one thing you can't say about those is they come in the middle of the night. They're not really super reliable time frames, and the reason why is because they're trying to work around the freight railroad schedule. So, um, being able to have consistent um, time frames uh, leads to the success of a passenger system. So, owning the actual track is important to make something like that work. Um, doesn't mean it, it doesn't have to be like that, but it it will be a predictor of success for sure. Okay, and this may have been before you were with Morpsey, but just to go back, because how were they going to do this with the three C proposal, which was a proposal to connect Cleveland, Columbus, and Cincinnati with passenger rail, and it even had lined up federal funding. And then uh, Governor Kasich, when he was elected, he, he sort of killed it. Um, but how, just to go back one step, how were they going to do that in terms of lining up or competing with the freight trains on that line? Well, yeah, they were taking the very initial steps to get that off the ground. So I think that was one of the struggles in, in this process and why, in, I'm sorry, in that particular process that proved to give um, the governor at the time, uh, uh, the ammunition to, to kill that project was because they were trying to work around the freight rails. They were trying to work with various levels of track and connecting all those pieces in those initial phases, which meant that some areas were going to be slower, that the overall time of the line um, seemed um, unreasonable to kind of the average ear. Uh, there was other things to take into account, like you'd be able to work on the train, not having to stop to go to the bathroom, or other things that people don't account for on trips like that. Um, but all in all, um, that that was the factor, was not owning all of that line. And you're not going to. That alignment long, it's just it's going to be a rarity. And to have um, class one level service, which means it's built for uh, higher speeds, um, like, you know, so that it, you could go over like 35 miles per hour and things like that. So that's the reason why you would want Norfolk Southern or CSX in the mix, right? Uh, because they maintain those tracks at those levels. So, uh, right. so I think, you know, that's something that can evolve too. Right. Um, say, so you get a service like that off the ground. And I think this was, I, I, I was tangential. I mean, being in Springfield, we were one of the stops on the three C. Mm -hmm. uh, that is during the time I also started working at the state and I was starting to work with areas around transportation oriented development, including cleaning up brownfields around this, you know, and then that all fell apart and I worked on some other stuff, but that, that was, I was involved, but not on the corridor work at the time. Um, and you know, that's, uh, try, trying to figure out those pieces and how it evolved over time was the key here. And that was the story. And I don't think the general public is just very patient. Uh, I mean, I, I work in long range planning. People, you know, have come to events where, or uh, public involvement opportunities for Hyperloop and said, where do I get my ticket? I'm like, well, <laughs> you, you know, like you might get it in, 50 years from now or 30 years from now, you know, so it's a, a, I work in a much longer time frame than most. And so I think the patience of the general public, when we go to them to talk to them about their future, reality has to be a factor and um, understanding that this is not something we're talking about for tomorrow, but certainly is attainable if we keep working towards it. Right. Okay. That's a good Same place for, to start in. Same start for 3C. That's yeah. the way that would have started. Yeah. Right. right. And the ideas would have improved and gotten faster as it went. But yeah, it, it never started. So <laughs> the Confluence cast is sponsored this week by the Mid-Ohio Regional Planning Commission, or MORPSI, featuring stories about local and regional partners that envision and embrace innovative directions in economic prosperity, transportation, sustainability, and an inclusive central Ohio. Morpsey's transformative programming, innovative services, and public policy initiatives are designed to promote and support the vitality and growth in the region. For more information, please visit morpsey.org. Okay, that's a good uh, segue into the Hyperloop. Um, do you want to give just an overview? Because I, um, 
feel like it's not something that everybody knows about. Like what exactly is a Hyperloop and how does it work? Awesome. So I, I love telling people about Hyperloop. It's a super fast way of travel that's being developed where you're, you're in a pod inside a vacuum tube and that uh, pod can move at more than 600 miles per hour because it's levitating on a magnetic uh, track uh, across uh, the rail. And what's unique about that opportunity is that you the speed <clears throat> it, it has no resistance because it's a near vacuum inside that tube so it creates this opportunity where you can just kind of free float until you need to stop and then that's what created by the magnet to bring bring that pod kind of back down the levitation isn't like a huge amount of space but it, it's enough to kind of keep that that momentum going um, which also creates the opportunity for uh, this mode of travel to not actually have that much um, energy usage because there's kind of the get off the ground part and then the stopping part but really in between because there's not very much resistance at all you're just kind of floating at at that speed that uh, the initial jolt got you up to um, so that's very simplified I'm no engineer I listen to a lot of these walks who are in this uh, uh, field uh, all the time, but that's my basic understanding of it. But the thoughts of it, I mean, basically are that you can travel inside this tube where there's no intersections, like, like in a car or even in a train, where you're not going to be hitting other, you know, there's no chances of crashes that are um, head on or angular. Um, and uh, you're, you're safe from that, but you're moving at air split airplane speeds. Um, so the thoughts of that are just amazing and can truly change the way we think of local uh, in the future. Mm -hmm. And from the Columbus perspective, I mean, I started covering this, I think, in 2017, when there was something called, I think it was called the Global Challenge. Do you want to start the story there and say, because that specifically, Morpsey came in at that point, if I understand it right, and said, hey, we have a corridor that might work for this. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. So uh, the story starts a little before that in like 2013, 2014, we completed a feasibility study for passenger rail between Chicago and Columbus. And we kept working that. We worked with all the mayors along the line. They were very committed to advancing it. But we weren't getting much traction when we were going after grants, getting locals to match it, going after the FRA money. And we knew we needed to continue doing environmental review processes in order to see that through. And um, along the same time, we were hitting some like rough patches on the passenger rail conversation in Chicago. This global challenge popped up. And we had all, as geeky planner, rail buff types, in the office, we were like, well, there's this opportunity. What could we do with the work we've already done in pitching this idea to this company who's interested in corridors around the world? So we started putting together um, a kind of a pitch, a paper about um, the um, proper, you know, the properties around Central Ohio that would be the reasons why you would want to connect to us. Things like the population growth and the job market and uh, the education scene and why connecting that to Chicago would be very important. And there are a lot of the things that we had already studied in our rail, rail um, feasibility study. So we were able to pull all that stuff together. And then we also at the same time knew the state was partial owner of the line between Columbus and the state border near Pittsburgh. Um, and so we contemplated, like, what if we made this a three-city situation where we're connecting Pittsburgh, Columbus, and Chicago, and um, that's kind of how the whole concept was born. Uh, we pitched it in there. There was like 2,600 applications from around the world, different corridors. Uh, in the end, we were one of 10 at Virgin thought, wow, that's a really awesome opportunity. Uh, 
so we took advantage of it, and uh, here we are. We've we finished a feasibility study on Hyperloop recently. We still continue to advance with passenger rail, um, doing environmental study uh, work to advance passenger rail because we don't know where this is all going to end quite yet. So we want to keep both balls rolling, um, and uh, we've been talking to Hyperloop about testing in the in the Central Ohio area. Uh, the next version of their product. And um, I'm currently, and uh, you can see the bags under my eyes if you were doing the, the uh, video of this, uh, I've been writing a proposal for a US FR, USDOT FRA, Federal Railroad Administration, uh, proposal for maglev funding um, for a corridor between uh, downtown and the airport. Basically, it would be the first uh, in-depth uh, preliminary engineering and um, uh, environmental analysis work done on this entire quarter, like the deeper level set you would need in order to do the detailed design for building out a quarter like that. Okay, so, and that would be the first segment. The first segment of the Hyperloop you're talking about? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Okay, and is that the same as when I talked with some people from from the company Virgin Hyperloop One about this, they talk a lot about something they call a certification track, which is, I think, the the first step in building something that would sort of be a full scale test of the technology, and it would get all the enable them to get all of the safety approvals from all of the levels of government they would need. Is that is that right? So um, we're kind of working two different angles at once. Okay. Uh, on the certification track, we're focused in the northwestern central Ohio area, um, where maybe a lot of other testing of vehicles and um, tech, transportation technologies are happening. So we're, we're focusing out that direction. Uh, for this, um, this is continued work on the corridor. So this wouldn't be test. This would be uh, advancing a real project that would need to be built. So. Okay. Okay. I want to talk about, I mean, I think the, from my perspective, the Hyperloop, it just got so much attention <laughs> so quickly. And I think mm -hmm. one of the points you've made is that this actually helped in some ways. And I don't think a lot of people realize this, the passenger rail, the work needed to continue the passenger rail conversation was getting stalled out. And the Hyperloop being brought in and talking about that same corridor, Columbus to Chicago, and maybe adding in Pittsburgh, actually enabled some life to be breathed into the passenger rail process. Is that right? Yeah, it, it certainly did. Uh, we, we didn't have any takers uh, to help us advance the um, environmental process for the passenger rail connection to Chicago. And that's what tipped us towards this Hyperloop direction. But then when we did the feasibility study, we also picked up an environmental component of passenger rail, knowing that that would be um, good information for the Hyperloop side too, but also recognizing that's not a certified technology in the United States. So it's almost like we had a variable and a control in, mm -hmm. uh, in, our, in our study process. So we're still continuing down one path while we're starting another path and they both uh, help each other. The other thing we did by connecting to Pittsburgh and our environmental um, components that we completed um, for passenger rail went on to Pittsburgh um, from Chicago. And um, that was not in the initial feasibility study for rail either. So we not only continued to study the environmental analysis of the rail corridor, we extended it on to another ma major metropolitan area. So, I mean, regardless of what, um, comes of this work as far as which mode, um, we're prepared either way. Okay, so for people who think the Hyperloop is kind of a dream technology and they don't see that happening, you can kind of reassure them by saying, oh wait, passenger rail, which is an established technology, that still could happen. That's not dead for this corridor either. Right, and it may actually be, that it's a more feasible option for legs of this, right? Like maybe there's a certain 
uh, as like maybe one whole leg. I don't want to pitch exactly what areas would make sense for what because I don't think we were really at that point. But there may be a point where Hyperloop can never be built in that area. It just wouldn't make sense. So then passenger rail would make sense, and those people connected by via passenger rail but you may then be able to access the hyperloop and still speed up their travel into another city um, uh, by by reaching it with with passenger rail so there's a lot of different ways you could look at it um, there I mean there might be areas where they both could be used in tandem because one is more of a local service and one is more of a, a long a longer regional service yeah. I mean I mean, you have that in Chicago with uh, various types of commuter rail where some are going out into, you know, over into like um, Gary, Indiana, whereas others are just right there around the local. So if you think about that same concept on a bigger scale, um, you know, the, the types, maybe the technology on the exterior of those vehicles isn't the different, but the, the amenities on the inside are different, mm -hmm. right? And it's, they're different products in the end. And I mean, we, we could be talking about that same concept with this. Mm -hmm. Do you think you mentioned people's uh, conception of how long it takes to get these kind of things done is sometimes a little <laughs> unrealistic. Um, I Do you feel like with Hyperloop, it's even more so because I, I feel like people, they saw the initial wave of headlines that said, oh, you can get to Chicago in 30 minutes from Columbus. And then they're kind of like, oh, that would be cool. When's that going to get built? But then there's like 100 steps <laughs> in between. I mean, I'm always pointing out to people that uh, Virgin Hyperloop 1, they built a test track in the desert. But that's a limited, I mean, it's like the last I checked, that was like 500 meters long. It went in a straight line. No people went into that. <laughs> when they test it, they don't do it with people. I mean, that's a very... Um, preliminary kind of, oh, this is how this would work. That's not like, oh, we've already done this, now we just need to build it. I mean, there's there's a lot of steps involved before this technology is even proven for that kind of a scale project, right? Right, that was just a proof of concept. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, there's quite a bit that's gonna go into this. I mean, we, we had some big news in the last week. I know you're gonna ask me more about that in a little bit here uh, about how this mode is gonna get regulated and uh, kind of establishing some of those standards like we do for our roads, like we do for our railroad and our water here in the United States, that Hyperloop has to come under those same levels of scrutiny to even start as a project. Um, so there's there's that piece that hasn't been answered. Um, so <laughs> that that's uh, I, I never saw myself in a uh, when I started you know in in uh, undergrad or even as a planner working. I never thought I would be working with a technology that wasn't yet built uh, or working to do uh, education with our legislators and with the USDOT about opportunities to pursue new technology. But we're in that role, not just with Hyperloop, but with all kinds of transportation technologies in central Ohio. So uh, it's, it's definitely an exciting place to be. So we've got that big hurdle to go over. Uh, and then, you know, I think the thing that people don't understand about transportation projects that any transport big transportation project takes about 20 years they just don't realize what's going on behind the scenes right mm -hmm. Columbus Crossroads I was at one of the kickoffs where some of the constructions is going on downtown last summer mm -hmm. um, give, give a overview what is Columbus Crossroads for people who don't know all the improvements on I-71 and I-70 through the inner belt of downtown um, and uh, they're in multiple stages, multiple phases, um, and we're in the midst of two, two of them right now, but there's uh, some that have been previously happened as far back as, uh, let's see, 2014, 2013, and we're still talking, you know, that we could be doing some of this work out 10 years from now at this point. So, because um, so uh, most recently one of the projects got pushed out another year. So I think that what people don't understand, you know, Jack Marchbanks, the current director of ODOT, at the time whenever they started doing the studies for the Interbelt improvements, nearly 20 years ago now, was at the district office. And he shared with the audience at this kickoff last summer 
Like I started this work 19 years ago, you know, and um, that's, that is the pace of transportation planning, transportation engineering. And it's not even about getting the work done, but it's also about getting the funding lined up right and making mm-hmm. these things fall in and then making sure that like the environmental analysis you did and the engineering you did still current on the day that you go to kick off the project because you have mm-hmm. to do some of that stuff so far in advance so there's a lot of a lot of steps to a process that people don't even see and they just take take uh for granted on our roadways today um so uh, I would say with the new technology and the hype around the beginning of it, it's getting exposed how long that process is. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I guess my bottom line on this is, Brent, that don't fool yourself. Every transportation project takes a long time. <laughs> Ask Coda. <laughs> right. Well, I, I think a lot of people look around and see what, what's been built in the last you know 50 years, and it's mostly highways, right? I mean, those highways, yeah. like, they do take a long time, but also if you're kind of been following this stuff, you see that eventually they get built, whereas we haven't seen much built that's not a highway or that's not a car-based transportation. Is that fair to say? Yeah, that is definitely fair to say. And I think, I mean, one of the things that we have traditionally had, I wouldn't say working against this, but it's not been something we've had to address is a highly dense population um, growth that's at such an exponential rate that uh, mass transit is uh, something we're going to have to have where people are going to be sitting in cars for hours getting to and from work. Uh, So it's not been a hindrance to our market yet, yet. Right, because it's still fairly easy to get around in a car in Columbus and the region, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, at this point, all we can hope for is to at least keep our commutes about the same as what they are today moving forward. We don't wanna hurt them anymore, but I don't think there's much we can do to help them. Um, But we're running out of land to add more highways. um, And with the um, growth that's anticipated of up to a million more people or being to a region of 3 million by the year 2050, as we've identified in our Insight 2050 report at MORPSI, um, we are built out in a transportation system. I mean, what we're doing now are improvements, not so much for capacity, but for safety, uh, some somewhat capacity, and just the overall um, being able to accommodate as many people as, as we can uh, in a modern system. Um, but that modern system now is going to have to include opportunities like um, better commuter services for mass transit. Um, and I will say our friends at Columbus and CODA, and we're working alongside them, planning for the Link Us uh, local uh, transit um, improvements on corridors is definitely much needed because in, you know, I guess 2050, we're looking at, you know, the next 20 to 30 years at this point, um, we're going to need something like that and and create opportunities for everybody, not just people who own cars, Mm -hmm. right, or can drive a car. Um, We have a lot of folks who are aging. Um, We have young people, more and more young people who need to be able to get around. Um, So being able to create a city with world-class infrastructure elements is going to be very important as we grow. As more people move here, they've, they've come from maybe another part of the world where they had better transit amenities or better mass transit. Maybe it wasn't even as good of a a community in general, but they had mass transit opportunities and were able to get around. And they come here and it's not as good, right? And we've got we've got to make that better. We have to be the place where people want to be and we have to have all of the amenities that they need in order to be successful here because that's what we want is a, a prosperous region. We support uh, all the efforts in our region to do to be a part of creating that prosperous region. One of the things that I think Morpsey has done, because I've read through the, the reports that you've made and the research you've done about specifically that Chicago-Columbus-Pittsburgh corridor, 
I feel like you've made, and maybe this isn't getting through because everybody just hears Hyperloop and they want to talk about what it's going to be like to be in a tube going 600 miles an hour. But yeah. you've made the case that something, either passenger rail or the Hyperloop, something besides the current options, which are driving on the highway or taking a plane, there's going to be a real demand for something else it, throughout that corridor, looking at the population growth along the corridor and the changing demographics and just the future of transportation that you're kind of making the case that some, some alternatives are going to be necessary going forward. Yes, um, definitely. The gr I mean, we're going to be seeing substantial growth in Columbus. Chicago is going to be seeing it. Uh, Fort Wayne, um, uh, Gary, uh, over to Pittsburgh, There's, they're all seeing some level of growth. Um, and even in places who may not see uh, growth in population like Lima, they're anticipated to see a growth in employment opportunities. Mm -hmm. And actually, that's been a trend in Ohio for a while as we see these opportunities show up in areas outside our major urban centers, maybe a medium-sized urban center like, like Lima or smaller, or even a uh, rural area, and there's no way to get to the jobs, right? And so that's the kinds of things we're seeing and creating a line where you can kind of get to those places uh, where those jobs are means you're creating access to jobs for people who may live in the city or creating access to education and health opportunities in the city for people who live in rural areas, right? So uh, we've definitely thought through a lot of those um, pieces about what this could mean for the way we live our life if you had that hyperloop access, the speed side of it. Passenger rail, I mean, it could definitely be a factor um, being able to access those things, but without the speed component, you're losing some of that um, ability to create regular commutes on a line like that. Mm -hmm. um, but it's not, I mean, it's not all about just commutes. Some of it is just having other options for transportation. I mean, you think about kind of having resiliency as we're finding out we've not always been great at predicting <laughs> what's gonna happen uh, no. things lots <laughs> in a short amount of time. Um, and I would say you almost like, you at Morpsey you've built the case that it's good to have other ways to get between major cities in a region besides an airplane or a car, right? Yeah, I mean, redundancy is an important piece of almost all technologies, and that's true in the transportation system as well. I mean, air travel is a great opportunity, but it has its risks with weather Im impacting it. So does, uh, you know, a car is a great opportunity for certain dr drive lengths and certain types of travel or certain reasons for travel, right? And traveling in a large group, for example, or you having to carry a lot of baggage with you or, you know, uh, but then once you get into say, like, say you're driving to Chicago, once you get into the city in a car, what do you do with the car? You don't even need the car, right? Mm -hmm. Depending on what you're going to be doing. So we don't currently have something that helps with that piece of it. And then if you fly into Chicago, it's maybe a short flight, but you wait at the airport here for maybe an hour to get through and get, and then once you get over there, you go through this whole process to get out of the airport and into the city. Right. What if that wasn't a factor anymore? Right. Mm -hmm. You know, so, so, you know, being able to create more modal options to suit all the needs that we have right now, we were limited to a certain level and this would help expand those options. Passenger rail would do the same too. You know, I mean, it's not, it, it, it's not everybody needs to fly. I mean, they don't, maybe they don't need the time. They just need to get there. Well, maybe at a similar speed as a car, but they, once they get there, they don't really need the car. So passenger rail might be the better option, or maybe they want to stop somewhere in between and take a break in between time. And this will allow them to do that. So I think uh, there's creating that redundancy and the, the truth in how you develop any technology, any type of utility, uh, that's true here too. Mm -hmm. Okay, I think we should probably wrap up the <laughs> the the talk here. But I I do want to kind of if you had a closing message about the hyperloop, do you think people should be optimistic that this technology is going to be developed and we could actually see this in the region, or is it more just 
something that we should be ready for in case everything works out and it and it's a technology that that is sort of um, developed and and works so i think yes to everything you just said um and i will go so far as to say if it is further developed if it is a technology that that moves to the market that this region will play a role in it um, we're, we seem very committed to transportation um, technology development here. We definitely have all of our cards on the table to be a part of developing this technology. Um, and I feel like we are poised to help this one get off the ground. Um, will that mean that we'll eventually be able to utilize it as part of our network too? Um, that's, that's what the original intention was, but I feel like it's also, we've moved to exploring this new space too. But regardless, if this becomes something viable, I think it will have its role in Central Ohio, whether it be opportunity for jobs creating it or opportunities to use it. Um, and I think hopefully both. And just to follow up on that, what's the next sort of test for this for central ohio are we going to hear about anything soon are there i know you have proposals out there for these different pieces and parts um what can we look forward to next uh with the hyperloop and with this corridor yeah so we're currently working with virgin on a proposal and it's kind of a back and forth conversation right now between them us and the state about bringing a certification center to central ohio primarily in that northwestern area so i think before the end of the year that we should have something to say about that maybe it's going to take a little longer COVID's put a an interesting wrinkle in mm. things as far as just timing. I don't feel like it's impacted the overall long-term vision, but definitely even in how we communicate, change things a little bit. Um, so I think there's that side. And then as far as advancing a project, regardless of whether we're in the running for developing this project for testing it and being the certification center for the United States, we're still advancing a project, and that's the MAGLA proposal I'm putting in this Friday to the Federal Railroad Administration, which would be the first segment of the Midwest Connect um, corridor to get full environmental review and um, conceptual preliminary design work done. So basically, it would get all the way up to the point of the final like drawings for construction. Um, and then we would sit here at the end of that one, we would be basically waiting for certification in the United States to move forward to the next phase. So, um, so fingers crossed on both of them, but one of them would be amazing. Um, and, uh, frankly, both of them would just be out of this world. <laughs> Great. Well, we'll look forward to, to hearing about what happens with those. Awesome. Well, really excited to share all this with you, Brent. Um, one thing you didn't ask me about, but I just want to make clear um, is that th there's been some exciting news in the last couple of weeks with the USDOT and the non, I was, I'm going to call it the new and emerging transportation technologies non-traditional <laughs> and emerging transportation technologies. That's, it's, it's called the Net Council uh, for the USDOT. They made this big announcement around pathways to transportation of the future. Uh, it included a lot of guidance around Hyperloop. And one of the things they did was identify that the Federal Railroad Administration would now be the oversight agency for Hyperloop. That I know sounds like a bunch of bureaucratic blah, blah, blah. But let me just tell you, that is a door or a key that unlocks a door that's been locked for a little while. Okay. Um, so I think you're going to see some more momentum around the Hyperloop conversation. It also addresses some other things around aerial uh, drones and some other technologies as well. But Hyperloop was a big focus of, of this particular announcement. And uh, what I gave you was primarily the thing that impacts us the most with this project. So uh, I feel like um, we may see uh, a little bit more momentum, more momentum around um, 
this project now that we have an identified oversight agency at the federal government. Okay, so now we have, there's somebody in place who is actually going to set the rules about how Hyperloop will be regulated going into the future. Is that right? Right. Okay. Right. And that's, and that would, you know, internally, and I mean, well, it's kind of external, but internal to government, whenever I would talk to my uh, colleagues at our DOT or at the US DOT, uh, the, one of the first questions in this conversation was, who's the cognizant agency? Which basically means, who do you answer to with this project? And I was like, I don't know, but maybe we'll break the mold and make them figure it out. <laughs> well, guess what? They figured it out and we didn't have to go that route. So I'm super excited that that came out because that honestly checks a lot of boxes for people who were otherwise at a point where they were like, I don't know what to do with this. And I don't know what to do. So now, and then that also um, allowed a certain grant funding to go towards hyperloop projects that in the past were not, were not at least specifically uh, listed as uh, hyperloop being an eligible use of the funds. So yeah, it's a big deal. Um, and I think we've got to be ripe and ready to take advantage of, of this opportunity. Great. Well, thanks so much for talking with me today, Thea. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Brett. Look forward to hearing this online. <laughs>